Welcome to another episode of Good Gas Mondays with me, Crystal Tomlinson. It's a pleasure to have you with me and I want to say thank you for giving me your ear for a few minutes to just talk about you because all that we share here is about you, how to improve you, how to understand you, how to put you and your relationships into good context. So if this is your first episode, you're choosing a pretty good place to start because not only are we talking about you, we're talking today about your habits. So, habits, what are they? The easiest definition is to consider them settled tendencies of thought or behavior. So whatever habit you have, it is settled, it is a practice, it is ingrained, and it's difficult, though not impossible, to get rid of. Now, I was very careful to define habits to include thoughts and behavior because you can have mental habits. Um, for instance, every time you hear a word, you conjure up a particular image, that's a habit. Um, habits can also span across the emotional um, landscape. So every time you see a particular color, you feel happy or you feel angry or you feel afraid. And then your behaviors, depending on the particular stimuli, you can do or will do something because of those habits. But I want you to appreciate that even in my description of habits and how they're activated, there's usually something that triggers the behavior. So consider yourself a blank slate coming into this world. Not only do you don't have a, not only is it that you don't have a grasp of language and the appropriateness of different behaviors and the meanings attached to objects, but you also don't have any habits. You're not very sure what behavior um, should, should trigger a particular response, what stimuli should trigger a particular response. So you learn those habits as you go through life. You learn your tendencies of thought. You learn the tendency of behavior. You learn the practice. So everybody has habits, but none of us came into the world with any habits at all. But why do we have them? Why is it that no human being escapes patterns of behavior or tendencies uh, in behavior? Well, it's pretty simple. It's an evolutionary gift. The brain is always looking for a way to save effort and to save energy. So it's instinctive that we're going to form habits that prevent us from having to think through every little thing. Can you imagine how exhausting it would be if every time you had to tie your lace, you went one, cross, dip under, make one rabbit ear, wrap around, st stick it in, make another rabbit ear, whatever your process was when you learned how to tie a shoe's lace. What if you had to think through every single motion or activity that constituted tying your laces? What if you had to think through every single button that you had to um, get in the hole when you're putting your shirt on? What if you had to think about every stroke of the toothbrush as you brushed your teeth? That would be very consuming and frustrating. So your brain, your brain depends on habits to develop those patterns where it doesn't even have to think about the thing that it's doing and it gets to focus on other things in the environment. Now, I don't want to get too technical with the terms and the names of the synapses and the pathways and all of that. But what I will say is that the 
portion of your brain that collects these habits and stores them waiting on the appropriate trigger is called your basal ganglia. And your basal ganglia is built in such a way that it recognizes the stimuli in the environment that calls on an already developed habit. So let's say getting up in the morning and going to the bathroom is your trigger for brushing your teeth. The basal ganglia depends on your walking into the bathroom to send those signals to your brain and body parts to say it's time to brush your teeth. And you reach for your toothbrush and the toothpaste without even thinking that, oh, I need to take up toothbrush first, then take up toothpaste, then flip open the cap and then squeeze the paste onto the toothbrush, then wet the brush, then put it in my mouth on the left side and then go bottom row, top row. Then I go over to the right side, bottom row, top row. You don't have to do any of that. As a matter of fact, your brain has developed such proficiency with that habit of brushing your teeth that you're able to brush your teeth proficiently and get it right with your cell phone in your left hand, if you're right-handed. So you're brushing with your right cell phone in your left. You're perhaps able to brush your teeth while engaging in completely different um, patterns of thoughts. So and maybe you're planning what you're going to wear. You're picking your clothes out while you're brushing your teeth. That's how fantastic the brain is. It's looking for ways to save effort. So it depends on those habits and triggers in the environment to kickstart those learned patterns of behavior. And once you get in the motion of the habit, it frees the brain up to think about other things because you don't have to be so detail focused on your habits. So that's that's the extent to which habits are necessary. Um, and, and another evolutionary benefit of the, the habit that we've developed in whatever area of life is that it's an evolutionary, instinctive, necessary component of our survival. So because you don't need to remember all these things in your consciousness, it makes for a smaller brain. A smaller brain takes up less space. Less space means a smaller head. A smaller head means easier delivery in childbirth. And easier delivery means low mortality among mothers. So it literally saves lives that we have habits which take up less brain space, which make for smaller heads that pass through birth canals safely and less strenuously. So moms can live longer. So it's a mechanism by which we protect uh, our, our very existence as human beings. So from the, the question of saving effort um, to the matter of saving lives, habits serve a very important purpose for us. Now, how do they work? Let's go a little bit in detail now on how they work. Charles Duhigg wrote a fantastic book titled The Power of Habit. And he goes in detail looking at the processes of psychology and psychiatry that unearth the brain circuitry surrounding habits. And then even in our social exercises, how television advertisers have mastered that science of habits to make us buy things that we traditionally wouldn't buy and make us feel as though we need things that we really could live without. So it's called a habit loop and it, it is constituted by three things, a cue, a routine, and a reward. 
Now, Duhigg uses several examples, and it's definitely a book I would recommend you reading. Um, it requires a lot of focus to remember what he's saying, and you probably have to read it twice to get a full grasp of everything that's in there. But I guarantee you that even on your first read, you're going to have several aha moments that you won't forget. So the habit loop in step one has a cue, which is really some kind of stimulus. You need a thing that is to trigger a particular routine or behavior. Habits don't exist outside of triggers. Because remember, your brain is trying to save space, so it temporarily forgets this thing by storing it in the basal ganglia. You don't need it in your consciousness. And so to bring it into consciousness, you're going to need a cue. One of the examples I love is about Pepsodent. Now, there was a time, and I, and I don't think anybody is taking any fun in learning this, but there's a time when only 7% of Americans had toothpaste in their cupboards. So brushing your teeth wasn't a habit. It wasn't socially required. It wasn't a basic component of hygiene in American society. 7% uh, at the time that Pepsodent came on the market as a toothpaste, only 7% of Americans had toothpaste in their cupboard. And so a company decided that they wanted to sell toothpaste and they needed people to need it. They needed people to want to take it off the shelves. And so they had to figure out a way to make them desire and develop a habit of brushing their teeth. Now, you might think it's a joke why a lot of those um, movies from in the 1700s, 1600s had people who even had wooden teeth and teeth were so yellow and um, so fragile because nobody was brushing it. So in comes Claude Hopkins and he developed a fantastic idea that really mastered the habit loop to force people to brush their teeth. And now 100% of people in America brush their teeth. And here's what he did. He figured out that we needed a cue that would develop the habit of brushing the teeth and that came with a reward at the end. And that's the third step of the habit loop. Cue, habit, or routine, and the reward. You have to have a reward at the end. So the cue was to tell people that there was a thin film that they could feel over their teeth if they ran their tongues along the surface of their teeth. And you can do it right now. So there is a film there. So he, he says, run your tongue across your teeth and feel that. That's film and that's filth. If you brushed your teeth with Pepsodent, you'd end up with this big, bright, beautiful smile. So the reason your teeth look the way they look is because of that film. Feel it? But if you brushed your teeth with Pepsodent, that film would disappear and you'd be left with sparkly, blindingly white teeth. Needless to say, it worked. People use that trigger of running the tongue across their teeth to remind them that they needed to brush it if they were going to get that reward of bright, sparkly white teeth. So that's one example of how we use the habit loop to develop good habits, like brushing your teeth is a good habit. But we also have bad habits that are developed using that same cue routine um, reward loop. One of the other examples um, that, that Duhigg highlighted was how a commercial break is usually a trigger for us to go and get a snack. 
And so once we hit the commercials, hardly anybody sits down and watches them. For some reason, you've developed a cue that commercials mean go eat something. Now, it could be because inside commercials, you always have those ads telling you to have a snack, take a break, grab a Kit Kat, walk up to the cupboard, grab some cornflakes, it's easy to make. Whatever it is that is being advertised on television has become a cue for us to actually get up and walk to the cupboard and get something to eat. So that's another example of the cue routine reward circuitry being used to develop bad habits because hardly anybody gets up to have a carrot when a show or favorite show goes on a commercial break. And so that's one example of a negative or bad habit that is formed using that same cue routine reward system. But how can you create better, longer lasting habits? What is it that you would have to do in order to break bad habit loops or to develop and reinforce good habit loops? I want to introduce you to a field in psychology developed by John B. Watson called behaviorism. And what it really defends is that one, we come into the world as blank slates and two, whether through classical or operant conditioning, we learn our habits. And so we can relearn them through those same two things, classical and operant conditioning. Let's explore that a little bit more. Now, one of the things that we've come to accept in the field of psychology is that human behavior can be conditioned. And what that means is we come into the world as blank slates with no idea what to do, why to do it, or even how to do it. And somehow, based on our environment and the varying stimuli we encounter, we learn how to do particular things and develop or condition ourselves into behaviors. Classical conditioning was first described by a physiologist from Russia, Ivan Pavlov, and it involved placing a neutral signal before reflexive behavior. It focuses on involuntary and automatic behaviors and how you can use some kind of neutral signal to trigger that involuntary or supposedly involuntary behavior. In his experiment, he used dogs and the involuntary behavior for them was to start salivating at the sight of food because of course they knew food tasted good. And what Ivan Pavlov was able to do is to use the sound of a bell instead of the food, the sound of a bell to trigger that same salivating response. And it was surprisingly simple how he got that done. What he would do before presenting the dogs with food was to ring a bell. And so eventually the dog started to associate the sound of the bell with the arrival of food. And in making that association that bell equals food, for them, bell also equaled salivating. And so what was otherwise unheard of, which was using a bell to make a dog produce saliva, became something that he did through correlating the arrival of food with the sound of the bell. And so for many of us who attended uh, at least public schools, the sound of the lunch bell reaffirmed or perhaps caused us to feel elevated pangs of hunger because we knew that that was the lunch bell. And so even if we didn't see or smell the food, we would begin to salivate once we knew that that bell 
had rung. And so if class wasn't finished and we heard the bell, we became very intolerant of whatever was happening in the classroom because it is now lunchtime and I'm very, very, very hungry having heard that bell. So we are also being conditioned through the classical form, even as we go through school. The other form of conditioning is known as operant conditioning. Now, operant conditioning focus on, focuses on voluntary behaviors. And it's important to, to note that both operant and classical conditioning fall under what is broadly known as behaviorism. So let's look a little more closely at what operant conditioning is. Operant conditioning is a theory that came out of the United States from uh, an American psych psychologist, of course, B.F. Skinner. It involves applying reinforcement or punishment after a behavior. So whereas classical conditioning looked at the automatic behavior and doing something before that behavior, operant conditioning allowed you to execute the behavior and then attach a sort or form of reinforcement or punishing. So it focuses on strengthening or weakening voluntary behavior. That's the thing that you choose to do or choose not to do. So let's use the example of pets again. And I'm going to use my dog and the process of home training or house training the dog, which is really to make sure the dog doesn't go inside. The process of home training or house training for a pet uses operant conditioning. So when my dog chooses to go in the living room, in the bathroom, in the hallway, in the bedroom, we have to use operant conditioning to get the dog to stop. So after the dog passes the feces, which nobody wants, but after the dog goes in the house, you bring the dog to his little load, allow him to see, perhaps smell it, and then what we would do is take the dog outside and close the door. Now, of course, the dog likes to be inside. It's nice, it's cool, it's safe, it's fun, it's where all the people are. So by taking the dog out of that space of enjoyment and fun and comfort and putting it in an uncomfortable space, which is to be outside, what we do is to condition the dog to associate that isolation with having gone in the bedroom. And so eventually... The dog gets the message. We put him outside every time he goes in the house. So he stops going in the house and he goes outside. Operant conditioning at work. Parents might not realize it, but it's the same operant conditioning that we depend on to indicate to a child that they've done something bad. So from sending them into the corner for a timeout after they've done a particular behavior, eventually they learn that that behavior leads me to isolation. If I don't like isolation, I must stop doing that, that particular thing. For other parents, it's a little more extreme. And so it can be a slap or a spanking that follows a, a behavior that is not to be encouraged. What we must learn to do is to inspire our own behavior or habits. And at the same time, kill the bad habits through operant conditioning. Here are some suggestions. Think of the habit that you have that is really, really bad. You would like to stop it. It is unhealthy. After you've engaged in it, you feel so uncomfortable. It brings you no joy when you see the results or the reward at the end of the habit loop. Think about that particular habit. I'll give you a couple seconds.
Now, whatever the habit is that you've chosen, what is usually the cue? What is it that gets you into that particular habit to begin with? Because we all have a cue. And that's the classical side of the conditioning. Something must happen to trigger that particular behavior. So if it's eating salty or very sweet food, what's your cue usually? Is it the commercial on television? Is it a stressful situation at work? Is it an angry, heated argument with your partner? Is it not feeling like you have any friends and remembering that you don't have them that triggers you wanting and craving that particular habit or behavior of eating salty or sweet food? Figure out your cue. Now, I'm hoping you've identified your cue slash trigger. Now, I want you to think about the reward because operant conditioning is what we're going to explore as an, as an opportunity to break that habit. So, let's say you get the cue. You engage in the bad behavior and the bad habit. But the reward at the end or the consequence at the end is not something good. It's something bad. You have to create that punishment for yourself. And if you don't have the discipline to meet out that punishment, that self-punishment, hand over the keys to somebody else. So let's say you're trying to break the bad habit of sleeping well beyond your alarm, which means that you can't get up to make breakfast or to make lunch or to go to the gym. After you get the cue, which is the alarm, and your brain says, oh, it's the alarm. Remember, you can take another hour sleep. So you go back into that routine or habit of oversleeping what you'll have to do is to give somebody permission if you can't do it for yourself give somebody permission to deliver a bad consequence after you have engaged in that particular routine if it's your spouse use your spouse if it's your best friend your gym partner whoever it is you're going to tell that as of today my alarm is supposed to go off at six I usually sleep through the alarm until 7. I'm depending on you at 6.15 to do X as punishment. X to give me discomfort. X to annoy me and jolt me out of this particular habit. X must be the negative reward I get for oversleeping or sleeping through the alarm. Eventually, your body begins to associate that cue of the alarm with the harmful behavior of being punished. And so the alarm becomes a cue that says you're going to be punished and you avoid entering that habit loop altogether because it is guaranteeing you a negative outcome or a, an outcome that leads to your displeasure. Think about ways that you can use this operant conditioning to force you out of the behaviors that you don't want or force you into good behaviors that you actually want to engage in. So remember, what is the behavior that you don't like? What is the usual reward at the end of that behavior? So long as the reward is positive, you will keep engaging in the behavior. Unless you create negative rewards at the end of the behavior, there is no way to end or stop it. So in the same way that a child has to receive a physical slap on the wrist, if they touch the flame or approach the, the, the lit stove, you must create a slap on the wrist for yourself. It is absolutely your responsibility because unfortunately, you're not part of some psychologist's experiment that's going to test and train you out of the behavior into a new one. You are wholly and solely responsible for your attitude and for your habits. So how are you going to set yourself up to make sure that you have negative cues at the end of behaviors that you want to end? 
or positive cues at the end of behaviors that you want to further. One of the positive cues I use relate to the gym. I know that I get a lovely burst of dopamine, not just because I've exercised, but from being able to post that exercise slash workout photo on my social media pages. I like being able to share that I have done this good thing and to see the positive comments coming in, to see the likes coming in, to see the engagement coming in after I've done this particular good thing. It releases good, happy chemicals in my brain. And so I know that if I want to earn that particular reward, that feel good moment, I have to go work out. And so working out becomes a habit and, a, and, a, and a, a behavior that I really enjoy engaging in because I know what the reward is at the end. And even getting that reward at the end says, let's do this again tomorrow. So you have to create your own triggers if you can. But if it's too hard for you, where you can start is at the end by putting bad rewards or good rewards, depending on what you want to have done with that particular habit. So I hope this podcast was particularly helpful for you in understanding what habits are, why you have them, how they are formed, and how to break bad ones or develop new, better, stronger habits. Thanks so much for tuning in to Good Gas Mondays. I hope you're able to share this with a friend, a colleague who you know might be struggling with good or bad habits to help them break the chain and kill the bad ones or plant and water the seeds of good ones. Love and blessings.